Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. interesting Sunday. It is in our little community. It's not only spring forward Sunday, it's spring break Sunday. Uh, so I was with, uh, we have a once a month community dinner in my little neck of the woods in Hi-Vi and a couple CBC families uh, are in my community. And so we're leaving last night. It's eight, it's really nine. Kids don't want to go to bed. And they said, we'll see you in the morning. And they said, it's spring forward Sunday. We'll see you online. <laughs> I said, okay, welcome. Um, Happy to have everyone join us today. We're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 10, the very end of it this morning. But if you haven't been with us for a while or you're watching online, we, we start the same way before we open the scripture. We start just by acknowledging God in this moment and by acknowledging that the way the world works, and that's what this chapter has all been about, the way this world works oftentimes fights against the ways and rhythms of Jesus. So we live in a critical and consumeristic culture, and when we come to this place, we change our focus and ask the question, where is God moving, and how is he shaping and molding me? In the words of a pastor that I like out of Portland, the move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. We show up this morning, and we ask the question, God, where are you forming me as we interact with your living scriptures? So to do that, we're going to begin just by praying. I'll pray for us together. I'll ask you to take some time if you're comfortable and pray uh, silently to yourself. I'll ask you to pray for me that God might use this time together to show us his goodness and beauty. Pray. God, I'm thankful that we can be here online or in person. I'm, I'm thankful that we get this time to come together and reset our world and just remember what's worthy of our worship, to recenter our lives around that which is truly beautiful and good and gives meaning and order to life. So this morning... As we talk about the dynamics between people, the dynamics between followers of Jesus and a culture that's hostile to Jesus' spirit, I pray that you convict us in a righteous and good way. I pray that you encourage us towards how to live more like Jesus in our day-to-day. And I pray that you show us more of you. If you're comfortable at us, you just take a couple seconds and say a, a prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit might speak and shape your spirit this morning. I'll ask you to pray for me <clears throat> that I might do a righteous job in communicating the truth of God that we see not a man in a message, but the beauty of, of Jesus today as we talk through Matthew 10. I pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So. When I first moved, we bought our first house four years ago now, Sarah and I did, and it was in East Dallas. And we're there for about a week, and all of a sudden we get this knock on the door. And this older lady is standing there, and she opens, I open the door, and she looks at me, not knowing me from anyone, and said, do you guys have a church? And I said, yes. 
And, and she hands me this bag. And in this bag is this jar of salsa from this big, one of the biggest churches in the DFW Metroplex. And this church made their own salsa and branded it just to give new people that moved into communities, everybody. And I said, that's what we need. That's what's holding us back from mega church goodness. <laughs> we need CBC salsa with a tagline of like Revelation 2015. You think this is hot, Lake of Fire, right? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was bad. I, I lost an hour of sleep. You know how this goes, all right? I will not do that ever again. <laughs> But, but, but in that moment, I remember thinking, like, this woman is so sweet and so kind, and her love of Jesus promoted this meeting, not her love of, like, we want to make this street the best in the neighborhood. And I felt so encouraged, even though we go to different churches that probably function differently, even though we go to different churches that probably were in different denominations. It was a beautiful moment where even though I didn't know her and she didn't know me, I was encouraged. I was encouraged in my community and in my faith. I wonder... And today we're going to get into a little bit how good we are anymore at welcoming others that follow Jesus. So in our text, if you've been following with us, we're in Matthew chapter 10. And just to give a brief uh, little synopsis of where we are, because it's really important to understand our text today. Jesus does this amazing job at saying, this is what my kingdom's like in the Sermon on the Mount. He walks down the mountain in chapter 8, and it resembles Moses and Sinai and freedom and all the good things in the Old Testament. And then he starts to literally live out what he just talked about. There's a bunch of healings, and there's some truth bombs dropped on people. And he's going to say, it's not just something I talk about. It's something I do. Join me. And then he says to the disciples, for the first time, he calls them disciples. And he says to them, now you get to go and do the same. And they're probably like, yes. But then he says, and it's not going to be fun, and it's not going to be easy and you're going to suffer. And they're like, no. (laughs) And so we pick up at the end of that chapter where he talks about not just how the world treats followers of Jesus, but how we're supposed to treat each other in a hostile world. In the New Testament, over a hundred times, there's the one another verses. It's uh, a phrase in the Greek that basically says, this is how you interact within the body of fellowship. Over a hundred times, that's far and away more than anything else is talked about. Because in the first century, I think New Testament writers needed to know that they weren't alone. I wonder how we do with the one another's now. There's a study done in 2017 by Lifeway. It says 66%, a majority of Americans ages 23 to 30, so they stopped attending church on a regular basis for at least a year after turning 18. Why was interesting. Among their top reasons was that church members seemed divisive, judgmental, or hypocritical. Michael Emerson is a sociologist and a scholar of American religion at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and he recently said, I quote, that he studied religious congregations for 30 years, but he's never seen such an extraordinary level of conflict within religious congregations. I wonder how we are at welcoming people, at being less hostile and more hospitable. There's an amazing article a year ago written by Timothy Dalrymple. He's the president and CEO of Christianity Today. I just want to read you a long-form quote. The, The article is called The Splintering of the Evangelical Soul. It's really good. He said, Right now, one group within American evangelicalism believes our religious liberties have never been more firmly established and another that they've never been at greater risk. One group believes racism is still systemic in American society. At the, at the same time, that the systemic racism, others believe is a push in a progressive program to redistribute wealth and power to angry radicals. 
One is more concerned with the insurrection at the Capitol, another with the riots that followed the killing of George Floyd. One believes Trump presidency was generationally damaging to the Christian witness, and another thinks it was enormously beneficial. One believes the former president attempted a coup, another thinks the Democrats stole the election. One believes masks and vaccines are marks of Christian love, while the other thinks the rejection of the same is a mark of Christian courage. It is a time in our country when we've chosen hostility over hospitality to those who say they follow Jesus to the one another's. And so today what I want to do as we get into our text, as we talk through verses 40 and 41 and 42 from Matthew 10 is remember the role of Christian hospitality, of Christian welcoming, of Christian receiving in the life of the body of followers of Jesus. Because they needed it and I think so do we. Let's dive in. Verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me is the one, uh, receives the one who sent me. So just at the front, let me talk about some language we're going to use today. Um, the word receive here, we're going to get into in just a second, but, but I'm going to use a couple different words synonymous. I'm going to say receive. I'll say hospitality sometimes. I'll say welcome sometimes. I mean the same thing. We don't necessarily have a one-to-one word for what's meant in the Greek by this kind of receiving. Literally, the word means to take hand in hand or to embrace or in a more um, kind of all-inclusive definition to make one's own. So, So when it says, whoever receives me, it's more than just we would think on Sunday mornings when we have people by the door that say, welcome when you walk in. That's great, but this is more than that. It's more than just when we shake hands awkwardly for a couple minutes in between songs or after the service. That's great but it's more than that. In the first century world, to receive traveling followers of Jesus was incredibly necessary because there wasn't a whole lot of uh, hotels and you needed the kindness and compassion of other followers of Jesus to literally get by as you'd walk from town to town and village to village as you were on mission with Jesus. In our culture, we don't necessarily understand the weight of what's meant by receiving. Like in the South, we do a little more because let me tell you something. Southern hospitality is real and good and godly. I'll tell you that right now, right? But, but even that falls short of Middle Eastern hospitality. If you guys know anybody from that part of the world, I went to high school and a good friend of mine was Jordanian, her family. And I remember the handful of times I would go over to her house in high school and some in college. And it didn't matter. One time I got there at like 11 at night. And I was thinking that not a whole lot of people would be up. The dad always watched TV. And, and the mom came out of her room and started cooking us food for about an hour. And she kept bringing out food. And I said, I am not hungry. I just ate. It did not matter. It was a level of hospitality that blew away Southern hospitality. It was a, a level of welcoming that showed my value to her. It was this way of receiving me that, that left me encouraged and motivated I think sometimes when we talk about the idea of receiving, we have to understand the difference between putting up with and fighting for the flourishing of those around us. It's that time in the sermon when I bring up my, my three-year-old soccer team. I, I promise the last couple of weeks you're going to get weekly updates. This is week three. We had another game. If you don't remember, week two uh, was our first game, and we lost 15 to two. Uh, this week we won four, five to four. That's right. Yep, yep. It can only be, I think one person is moderately excited. <laughs> and this week, actually, it was kind of cold outside on Tuesday, and since we lost so badly, I thought, let's practice inside. So we practiced right off these doors. Set up little goals, and Doug probably watched the cameras online and laughed at me for an hour. And I, I thought about it, this passage, because I'm the coach of this team. We've got a great team, and the parents are awesome. 
but the parents that are there are for this team, but they do not want to be the coach. So I'm running this practice, and these girls are running all over me. Literally, we had to cancel the practice early because they all started making snow angels on the carpet in make-believe world. And I looked at my assistant coach and said, have we completely lost this? He said, yes, we're done. (laughs) But what's funny was they're trying so hard with these girls, and it's a blast. And then the other parents are just like looking at us laughing. They're not opposed, (laughs) but they're not helping, (laughs) you know? Like if a ball goes by them, they'll be like, it's over there. <laughs> oh, thank you, you know? I think, I think we have to do up front is understand the difference between putting up with people that follow Jesus and fighting for the flourishing of people that follow Jesus. Very different things. One says, what's the least I can do? And one says, what can I do the most to help you follow Jesus? And so when it says in this passage, whoever receives you receives me, whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, we have to remember to receive is to fight for the flourishing of the other people who call themselves followers of Jesus. Not just not get mad at them, not just let them exist. It's a radical way to encourage people in a world hostile to Jesus. And what you see in this text, which is really important, kind of a tangent, but it's a good one, is Jesus say, hey, if you receive those people, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive the Father. There's a doctrine called the doctrine of inseparable operations, which basically means that everything Jesus does, he does from the authority of God through the power of the Spirit, creation onward. So there's nothing inside the Trinity that the Trinity doesn't do together. It's what we mean by Trinity, same substance and same beingness. So even in our Bibles, when we read like Jesus did this, what we really should be reading is Godhead did this. They always act in unison and always act together. Uh, and, and so often, I think we differentiate our life around different parts of our life and forget that just like the God had always acted in unison, so us always act out of our love for God. So what he's saying is, if you, if you want to accept people, if you want to receive other followers of Jesus, it all depends on a right relationship with God. So this is where we begin. Receiving others begins on a right relationship with God. If you accept God, then accept the people that God sends that follow him. It's a beautiful depiction of of God saying, hey, it's more and it's bigger than just you accepting this one dude that says they follow Jesus. It rolls up into how you view me. And that's what the scriptures do. They take mundane levels of good things and they say, but it's bigger than just what you see. It's lying is bigger than just lying and hospitality is bigger than just hospitality. It rolls up into the right relationship with me, which rolls up into your worship of me. This is kind of the nature of the Christian faith, that it's deeper than what you just see on the surface. That's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5. Hey, you've heard it said these things, but, but you missed the deeper point here. Don't. And so Jesus begins by saying, hey, you need to receive one another, and here's why. Because your receiving of one another is dependent upon a right relationship with me. And so if we're in a culture and a place that's hostile to other followers of Jesus, we have to start by saying, how am I doing with Jesus? It's a move inward before we get outward. Continues. Whoever receives a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever receives a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. In our text, you're going to see three different times he talks about rewards. So let's dive into that real quick. When the scriptures talk about reward, just be honest, we we don't exactly know what that means. We know there's rewards in the future in heaven. We know there's crowns that we're going to get. But what we have to do is stop short of making the scriptures about a meritocracy. Because we like meritocracies. God doesn't function in that currency. 
So we say, man, I want to be a good little follower of Jesus. So my mansion's bigger, my crowns are more, and I'm blinging out in heaven while everybody else is looking at me like, dang, that dude's awesome, you know? If we have that version of rewards in our theology, then we've missed the grace of God and subbed in instead a meritocracy. So we have to stop short and say, what are the actual rewards we get from following Jesus? And what I think they are is the rewards that we get in heaven one day from whatever we will do, from being faithful, from following, from obedience, we will take joy in them, not because of the amount of them, but because they're from a God who we love. It's like my kid has these seashells that she loves. She's had them for two years because they were given to her by two friends of hers from Florida. They are not great seashells. They're dirty. They're kind of small. I think that, you know, probably had better ones. They gave friends that liked her more. I just think there could be better gifts, but this happens with all my kids' gifts. It might be a leaf. It might be a twig. It might be a seashell, but she loves them because she knew the person that gave them. So when she says, every time, where are my seashells? She always says, where are my shells that Wes gave me? Every time she takes joy in the rewards because she knows who gave the rewards in the first place. C.S. Lewis says it like this. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they're given, but are in itself, uh, but, but are the activity in itself in consummation. What he's saying is the gift is not necessarily the crown or the reward. It is that we get to know that God is pleased and he's our best good. I think another way to interpret the idea of rewards here is it's simply in a practical sense here and now, because oftentimes in the scripture we get the practicality of the here and now and also the one day, so how Jesus tells us to live, right? Your life is better if you live in the ways of Jesus. If you live in forgiveness and live out love, if you faithfully love your spouse, those are better ways to do life that leads to a general joy that's deeper than the happiness that we define in our culture. And so there is a way now in which it's better that points to a future that is ultimately better. And so not only will there be some rewards that center around God's goodness that we can see and touch and hold and, and take joy in, but, but also I think the rewards that he's talking about, we talked about prophets and righteous people and little ones in just a second. I think so often the rewards we get from hanging out with the people of God are simply the blessings of the presence of people uh, that we know follow Jesus. Because as we follow Jesus more and more and find people that follow Jesus more and more, what that does is it grows our perspective on God. And we need that. So I get a blessing when I hang out with other pastor friends because they show me parts and sides of God that I haven't seen or I forgot about. And so the blessing, the reward, isn't simply to come. I think it's in the actual moment. I, I think what Jesus is saying is when you allow prophets to hang out with you, you get to be reminded more of my goodness. Don't miss that. It's a blessing for you right here and right now. Because when you talk about prophets in the Old Testament, they served uh, a purpose and a function. And just to go over it real quick, they kind of did three things. Uh, they spoke for God, the whole like, thus saith the Lord thing, you know? And this is written to an incredibly Jewish audience that would have known the role of prophets in everyday life. They also talked about what was going to happen. This is how we probably hear it the most, is prophetic futures are people that say, hey, God's gonna do this, trust me. But more often than not, what prophets in the Old Testament did, what prophets did in the first century, is they showed people God in their midst when people oftentimes looked past God. We see that in Moses when his face, face is beaming. We see it in Elijah when, when, when people said, God can't help us, and they said, God's working right now. You just don't see it. Oftentimes, what prophets did is they showed us God working when we couldn't see it. And look, 
in a hostile world that oftentimes rejects the claims of Jesus, we need people to show up and tell us that God isn't silent. We need people to show up and say, no, no, you don't understand, but, but he is working right here and right now. Because like it or not, we are absolutely shaped by what we see. We are. And I think that's what's led to some of the hostility and some of the division in our world and in the Christian community over the last couple of years is now more and more working from home. We watch more and more things that divide us. We spend less time in the scriptures and more time watching TV. That same author, Timothy Dalrymple, says this about the dynamics of why hostility exists. He says, the dynamics of modern media reward content that is immediate, angry, hyperbolic, rendering the media into a marketplace for scorn sellers and hate merchants. In short, the digital media landscape has evolved a profit from our, voice, from our vices more than our virtues. It's become incredibly effective at dividing audiences into hermetic media spheres that deliver only the information and commentary that confirms the audience's anxieties and antipathies. And then he goes on to say, the longer we give ourselves to media gluttony, skimping on the deeper nourishment that cultivates Christ within us, the less we will have in common. I think what Jesus is saying is accept prophets into your home, receive them because they show you where I'm working in our mix, in our midst. We don't spend enough time nourishing where we see God and that's what prophets do. So in a hostile culture, he's telling them, hey, hang out with them more and receive them because in that you see more of me. There was a, a thing my college did once a year. It's called Founders Week. And for a week, they would cancel classes. And they'd bring in, I mean, all of these speakers from all over the world, big, big name speakers. And there was a select group of like four people that got the privilege of driving these guys around from where they stayed on campus to where we met, which is about a mile away or 45 minutes in traffic in Chicago, right? And these kids didn't get paid. They didn't get class credit. They, they didn't get any other benefit. And you'd ask them one by one. These were the brightest and most mature because Moody wanted to show these people they were raising a generation of good Jesus followers, so Chuck wasn't in that group. But um, they would one by one look at you and say, man, I get to spend 30 minutes with so-and-so and just listen to them, and that's reward enough. Why do we receive the prophets among us? They show us where God is active and we get the benefit of sitting under their perspective on God. What do we miss when we don't do that? And he continues, not only prophets, but except righteous people. And by righteous people there, it's another subset of a class in first century Judaism. The righteous people were more people in especially the book of Matthew. The theme of righteousness are those who not only obeyed the law, but delighted in the law. So one showed you what God was doing here and now, and one showed you the benefits of living out the righteousness of God here and now. And you can see benefits to both. It'd be like if, if, if I lived in a house of people that really cared about what they ate and worked out all the time, that is going to grow my desire to do both those things. So why do we receive righteous people? Because they show us the beauty, not the legalism, the beauty of God's righteousness for the people of God. And what we have to understand in our text is what, what, what Jesus is doing is he's literally defining two classes in the Jewish system. Because he's going to go on in verse 42 and say, whoever gives only a cold cup of water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, I tell you the truth, he will never lose his reward. So you see three groups and they're intentional. Prophets, you see righteous people, and you see little ones. 
The first two, prophets and righteous people, were common classes of people in first century Judaism that the writer of Matthew appealed to often. You see in Matthew 5.17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, the righteous or the prophets. In Matthew 13.17, for I truly tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see uh, what you did but did not see and to hear what you heard but did not hear. So it's this idea that these two are classes in the first century Jewish mindset. Prophets are distinguishable from apostles, and righteous refers to other distinguishable groups of, of teachers. So you get two people in the Jewish community, two classes of people that were looked up to. And so then Jesus says, hey, also, this group of, of in the text it says, most interpretations say little ones. And some interpret that to be kids. I don't, I don't think it's kids. I think what he's talking to in this context, it seems clear that he's speaking of insignificant persons who are his followers, whether they're children or not. He's speaking of the ones that we overlook because they don't have status. Jesus is saying, especially in our world, in a world where we want to follow the people that have a following, part of what it means to show Christian welcome, receiving hospitality, is to serve the ones that don't. There's a a woman named Dorothy Day, and she became known for her social justice campaigns in the mid-1900s, and she would defend the poor and the forsaken and the hungry and the homeless, and, and she said, if everyone were holy and handsome, it'd be easy to see Christ in everyone, <laughs> you know? And that's so true. So he's talking about what it looks like for the community of God to be places of receiving and refuge in a hostile world. And he says, you're going to accept the prophets and the righteous and the ones that nobody else will that are following me. And in a world that, that worships people on platforms and podiums, especially inside of the church, this is something we need to remember. We're so prone to human worship. And in that, we have to remember we have to remember that our gospel starts, by our gospel, I mean the scriptures. Genesis 1 starts with all of us acknowledging the godness in all of us, the imago Dei, the, the idea that God has created you in his image, regardless of status. And some people need to hear that and be encouraged, and some people need to hear that and start reaching out to others more. And Jesus, in this text, does the same thing. The guy that I've been quoting that started CT, Timothy Dalrymple, that's what he did too. He was, he was a gymnast, and, and then after that he went to Stanford, and he led a coalition in Stanford to unite all the Christian groups under one umbrella. And then after that, he started working as a youth pastor and getting his doctorate at Princeton and a couple other places, and then he started working with ex-cons, and he started working with different kinds of churches. All he's done all his life is bring Christianity more together, more of a reception, and now he runs the largest Christian publication in this country. The beauty of receiving others in the name of Jesus. And so what we see when we talk about the nature of receiving is receiving regardless of status is rewarding because we see more of God from the bigs to the littles from God in our midst to how we follow to even the ones that nobody else would acknowledge this week my daughter learned that Zacchaeus song you know the one Zacchaeus was a wee little man and she can't stop singing it and I've always liked it because God loves short people and that's the big idea uh, but <laughs> But two, it reminds me how much God loves people that oftentimes other people overlook. 
What does it look like to receive all people so we see more of the beauty of God? And he talks about how in that same verse. He says, not only um, are you going to accept the little ones, but even those who give only a cup of cold water, I tell you the truth, he will never lose his reward. So in the first century world, the, the least thing you could do when somebody stopped by was give him a glass of cold water. Jesus is speaking in the smallest conceivable gift to the most insignificant of people. So he's saying, even if all you can do is simply a glass of cold water, it's worth it. I don't know if you guys live in the same place I do, which is we frantically clean when people come over to our house to show them that we don't live in filth all the time with toddlers. Um, and I think what that does in me, one, it's just good for us. And, and two, um, it's hard for me to get to a place where I can give something small and expect that God can use it in big ways. A couple of years ago, we did a leader training here and uh, came up with this idea as a staff and we were going to like just rip off TED conferences downstairs. And so we had 20 or 25 different leaders and we spent all morning and each one got seven or nine minutes and you spoke on something that you were good and passionate about. And my friend Sharon Gelnet spoke on hospitality. And I don't remember all the details, but I remember one story. And she said there was one time when they had just moved and they were getting things unpacked and their house was a mess and they forgot that they made plans or got the dates mixed up with somebody else and they showed up and knocked on the door. And Sharon said, my first thought was to tell them to go and we'll do this later. And then she said, no, come in. They got some pizzas and they hung out. And I say that to say this, that Sharon was one of the best I knew at just saying, hey, my life's not perfect, but I'll accept you anyway and we'll make something out of this nothing. Receiving others reminds us that God uses our little to make his much. Because so often we feel like we have to give something perfectly when really we have to give something and trust that God can make it perfect for us. One of my favorite questions as a leader, one of my favorite questions because it's so convicting for me because I'm kind of a perfectionist, is is it better to be perfect and late or good and on time? Hey, the answer is always good and on time. And trust God in the rest. And what causes us sometimes to not give, to not be hospitable, to not welcome, is we feel like we don't have enough to give. And Jesus is saying, even if you have a little bit, watch what I can do with it. Isn't that the nature of the gospel? And so what it doesn't do is allow any of us to say, I, I just don't have, my house is too small, or I'm really not a good cook, or fill in the blank here. It's not about the what, it's about the why behind and trusting that God can use what we have for much greater purposes. So Jesus is saying, in a hostile culture, receiving people shows people me. You gotta understand, again, they were <laughs> about to be sent off for the very first time. So I'm gonna do a little exercise here. Have you guys been on mission trips before? I've been on, I've led quite a few. And there's a moment when you go on mission trips, when you gather together. When I led student trips, we'd gather downstairs, we'd get in a big circle, and we'd hold hands, and we'd pray, and we'd say, hey guys, God's going to do amazing things. This is going to be a really good week. All right. Now imagine I did what Jesus did here, which is gathered everybody together, say, you guys are going to go be my ambassadors in this world. You're going to go show people my kingdom. You're going to go bring my gospel to your people, friends and family and neighbors that need it so badly. And then he uses these phrases. Just think about this. If I lined everybody up and said, guys, this is how it's going to go. I'm sending you out like sheep surrounded by wolves. Beware of people. Whenever they hand you over for trials, brother will hand over brother to death and father his child. Children will rise up against parents 
and have them put to death. Whenever they persecute you in one town, flee to another. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much worse will they call the members of his household? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. Who's running to that bus to get on and go? You know? It's in that context that he ends this chapter. Those are all quotes from this chapter. He ends this chapter and says, you need to receive one another (laughs) because that's who you have in your corner. And in a world that's hostile to the ways of Jesus, receiving others rejuvenates the rejected. We have to remember that. It's so hard sometimes to follow in the ways of Jesus and our culture is becoming more antithetical to the ways of Jesus each and every day I hope and pray and changes but in the meantime what's the value of welcoming and receiving others under the umbrella of Jesus and not let that hostility creep in to our homes into our communities as we live in a world that pushes back against the claims of Jesus and what we need are people that support and rejuvenate the rejected because we are, as the Bible talks about enemies in a foreign world, we are people that will live antithetical to the claims of culture because Jesus is worth it and in those moments we need one another if they're from the Baptist church or the Methodist church or the Pentecostal church, just kidding, I'm joking. We need one another to be under the umbrella of Jesus. And as we receive, we rejuvenate the rejected. So what does that look like for us? <laughs> one of the things I love about this text is that Jesus doesn't define what it looks like to receive. In his culture, it meant something. In ours, it means something else. And so I think where we begin as we go forward from here is simply ask, what would it look like to encourage one another in a society that's less encouraging to those that follow Jesus? That's it. It can be, my wife and I are going to try and set up um, meals a couple times uh, a month. We just have people over. That's it. And I cook for them or we order pizza depending on how bad my kids are that day. And we just simply encourage one another and say, hey, we're following Jesus together. Sometimes it'll be really good and sometimes it won't be. I got a note last week from my buddy from El Paso who knew we were going through just all the things with kids and a home reno and all the things going on. And he sent some cookies and he said, I love you and I'm praying for you. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture. It just has to be a gesture. So the question we come to today is as followers of Jesus, what can we do to rejuvenate the rejected? Find one thing. It's a text saying I'm praying for you today, you know? (laughs) Because we're meant to be people We're meant to be people that in our foreness for one another, remember the gospel that we're going out with. In college, I'll end with this story. In in college, um, I didn't have a great time. I found myself not really getting into the moody culture very well. Uh, Most of it was my baggage, but still had it. And my freshman year, I was in the choir. And I didn't know this before signing up. We had a two-week spring break. And the choir said, yeah, you have to go on tour with us over your two weeks of spring break. And I said, I don't want to. I want to go hang out with my friends. You people are not my friends. And, and they said, you don't have a choice. You have to come with us. And I said, okay. And they said, cool, where are we going? Maybe it's somebody, somewhere awesome. And they said, it's a tour of the Midwest. And I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> Sweet. Um, like the women's choir went to like California. Somebody else went to Florida. I was like, we get Iowa. And um, what you might not know is that, man, I got some family in the Midwest. Like all over. 
And they knew that I was just having a hard time. I didn't have a whole lot of deep friendships. I had a lot of conflict. And so over the 13 days we were on the road, you're supposed to partner up with somebody in the choir and you stay at random host homes, which is always awkward. Uh, I had family from all of the Midwest, I think take 10 of those days. And sometimes they drove an hour to come get me or two hours and take me back. And what I found in the middle of a very hard and very hostile for me culture was that when I found some place I could call home, it was very hopeful. It to me is a depiction of what we're supposed to do for one another in a world that's difficult. To accept, to be for, to receive, because in that we give hope for Jesus in a hostile culture. We rejuvenate the rejected. That's the church as we go out from this place. And if you think it's just supposed to happen for an hour, if I'm teaching two hours on a Sunday morning, you've missed the point. Because we are in this together. And then we get to go out from here and say, Jesus is worth it. Keep on going, no matter what's happening in the world around us. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you have called us all to be receivers of prophets and righteous and little ones. I'm, I'm thankful you've called us all to pass on the blessing of Jesus to those who follow Jesus in our lives. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you encourage us this week to do that. Just do that. Make a plan in some way to encourage those who follow Jesus, who are having a tough week or who we know need it. Holy Spirit, lay people on our hearts that we know to reach out to. Let us cultivate rhythms of hospitality to followers of Jesus. And in that, might we be encouraged. Might we see that God is bigger than our current culture and our current perspective. And might, like always, we see the beauty of God through the lives of others. Praise the Saints in His name.